Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Yepi Skogo. Yepi Skogo is the owner of Rort, a mixed modality movement facility in Copenhagen. And he's one of the earliest adopters of parkour in Copenhagen or in Denmark, as well as um, a yogi. And it's this interaction of yoga practice and parkour and how they came together that um, was part of the initiation of our conversations. I met Yepi a couple of years ago in Copenhagen, we had a lovely conversation over coffee, as well as getting to train together. And I just really love his perspective. I really love what they're doing with Fort, and I wanted to share his voice with you guys. So we go into his experience with parkour and how it led him to yoga and what he's learned and the interaction between those things and what led him to the development of Fort. And uh, talk a lot about the need to balance um, yin and yang and the idea that movement can give us something much more deeply meaningful than just external performance. So I think if you guys are interested in the themes of, of spirituality that have been coming up in the last few episodes, this will be a really beautiful one. There's no, um, there's no mysticism here, but there is a lot of respect for the idea that there is something more that we can aim at in movement practice than simply um, external objective metrics of uh, doing a movement you know, in some specific way. And that this really has to do with the character formation of human beings and even the way that we form and build meaningful communities. And uh, Yepi is a really wonderful person, and I'm really excited to share his voice with you guys. So without further ado, Yepi Skogo. Excellent. Yepi, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's a real pleasure to, to speak to you again. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. We were reminiscing a little bit. I, I believe the last time that we had like a real in-depth conversation, we were sitting in Copenhagen in October 2019 over coffee and had quite a quite a fun conversation about yoga and movement and and parkour and, and how all these things kind of uh, connect. Indeed. And you you had you just started? Uh, is it Quart? Is that how you pronounce <laughs> it? It's called Roat, and it means to. Yeah. To be touched or to be moved. Uh, I had started about, about a year and a half before you came there. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are. You are. It was clearly a passion project at the time. <laughs> totally. It seems like you guys have uh, have survived pretty well through COVID, um, all things considered, which is impressive. Yeah, it's been um, obviously. Having the name Rad, which literally means to be touched, is probably <laughs> the worst name you could ever <laughs> name a company in 2020. So it was a bit of a joke um, when, yeah, 
we, we just expanded uh, on 11th of March uh, 2020, and on the 13th of March, uh, our prime minister shut down uh, Denmark completely. Um, and then we had 1,200 square meters of movement space, and, <laughs> and no one could go there. So the day after, um, she closed down Denmark at night, and the next day, you're not allowed to meet. So the day after, we had the first online classes. And uh, the week after we had transitioned, 90% of the classes that could transition into online format, we had transitioned them into online formats and um, had a grand meeting with our uh, movement community uh, on Zoom three days after and sort of got their perspectives on how to, how to, how to navigate uh, in these waters. And um, so, so, so have managed to, to really bring um, bring the people with us. And right now, close to a year after lockdown started, we, we are in the privileged position of having more members than when we um, were hit uh, by the lockdown. And, and more to that, we have members from all over the world now, not only in Copenhagen. We have members from the States, from South America, all over Europe and Asia. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a super rough year, but also, yeah, a lot of new opportunities has opened up. I'm, I'm happy for you. That's really great. And, uh, it's cool that you're you're able to to expand. One of the things that we were talking about the last time we were here was the uh, was the relationship between yoga and parkour, right? Because mm. you know I, I believe these are kind of the two biggest touchstones of your movement practice, right? Uh, you start in, in in parkour and then you go deep into yoga, and then from there you expand into an extremely holistic and integrated movement perspective that I actually feel like um, very aligned with, with evolving the play based on uh, kind of reading through your website. But um, I have a funny story about yoga myself, which is both my parents at one point or another taught yoga. And my dad actually almost died after catching malaria, visiting ashrams and studying yoga in India. Um, and Yoga is like, it's, it's it's a very obvious thing for anyone who's interested in movement to study at some point, but there's always been something about it that was hard for me to tolerate, right? It's, uh, I saw so many gurus, so much kind of uh, what I would describe as woo thinking over the years in yoga. And so there's always been sort of an invitation to, to try it out. And there's always been a, a real resistance for me. Interestingly, I've been going through a little yoga sequence every morning and finding it's very nice for my back, which I was having some troubles with. But, uh, but I, I guess I was beginning to be a little bit more open to it at the time that I was talking to you. But you said something about how yoga means the yoke and it has this philosophy. And the way that you describe that philosophy was actually felt really deeply aligned to what parkour was and meant to me. So I, I'd be curious to talk to you about like, what do parkour and yoga have to do with each other? And mm. why might someone who is interested in movement culture and interested in parkour in particular, um, what could they get out of studying yoga? Beautiful, yeah. Um, so I guess the, a way into it could be just to briefly uh, look at how, how it landed um, in my world with the yoga. Right. So like you, we share a, a background from parkour. Uh, started back in 2004, uh, climbing buildings when I couldn't. Oh, wonderful. Apologies <laughs> for my daughter in the background. Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, there's no 
no you really like a, a bunker of a, a home office to, yeah. <laughs> to not have kids in the background these days no um so started off with parkour and really got deep into that practice we went to france to lille and Ibri and had the chance to practice with yamakasi and got a lot of inspiration from them and then really went on with that sort of paradigm of training that the Yamakasis were proposing at that time, which was wonderful and a, a very transformative practice. And also like a, at least what we brought with us home was a very macho culture also, like super hardcore conditioning, like two, yeah. three hours of crawling, no standing up. And then when CrossFit came to Denmark around 2006, we seven, eight, probably more seven, eight, we felt inspired to have that as our cross training. So it was parkour and, and CrossFit. And at least for my nervous system, I got really, really strong. Um, but I also noticed how it was a huge stress either to relate to a kettlebell or to relate to concrete. Um, mm -hmm. So we started teaching in Denmark and starting to build the community. And um, one day doing a training, I, um, I literally passed out. Uh, it was, it was, we were doing a cross training with kettlebells. I put down the kettle and the moment I put it down, I, I passed out. I had this huge stroke uh, or it, it wasn't a stroke, but just like a big sledgehammer in the back of my head and I fell. Um, so I was hospitalized. They thought I had some kind of, um, yeah, uh, what do you call it? Like, like a, yeah. Like, like a stroke and um, they couldn't find anything. And it turned out that I had just been so incredibly tense in my traps that they hadn't been able for blood to sort of stream to my head doing the workout. So I figured at that moment that I was probably strong enough and probably also not really in a flow state if that could happen. Uh, and a few weeks later, I was lying on the yoga mat the first time. And I remember just how incredibly awkward that felt and also like how completely misplaced I felt in this environment that was like devoid of danger. It was like soft bolsters, a freaking soft yoga voice. It was like a soft smell in the air. And, and, I, and I, was this, I, was, I was being called Hulk at that time. Jan Inutra from Yamakasi, he, uh, he named me Hulk, a Hulk, <laughs> uh, when we were training in, in France back in the day. So I was this, just, there was just so much tightness. So I remember doing yoga and not only would I sweat on my own mat, but it would start like going streams of sweat from my mat to these soft yoga people next to me. And I was just this breathing animal. Um, so, so like a super humbling start to come in to the yoga world. And luckily I had a teacher that was good enough to convince me to stay. Um, and, and I guess a year later, it started to feel um, sort of like I was supposed to be there. Um, and then fast forward uh, a, a good amount of years, we're sitting and having a conversation in, in Copenhagen around how they're relevant for each other. And I think to me, um, and as I remember our conversation back then, we can always uh, freshen it up to 2021, is that what I really loved about parkour and still love about parkour was, was the relation to to the environment was was relating to a tree or a table or whatever it was but that intimate connection relating to an object 
which when parkours to me feels really good and really valuable is that we start to overcome that 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 inherent separation that there is between me and that object that i can warm it up so much i can be so much in that tree or so much in that bench that i start to somehow massage or change that bench into something that i i have shaped i've proved it to have other qualities than it had when i before i started looking at it um, and that relation that's an intimate relation and that is to uh, to see two things come closer to each other and to me that is th that is the basic promise of yoga also that that we can basically overcome the sense of separation either whether that is between our busy mind and our and our body or or whether that is between us and them uh, i think when the yoga practice really works then that is um, that is what happens that you overcome that that sense of separation that sense of being alone separate from others um, i don't know how that lands with you at this point yeah absolutely i um the way i would summarize that is that both practices um work to bring us into a state of oneness mm. they work to to break down uh the sense of barriers that uh that limit us and can make us self-conscious in ways that are uh that make the world more suffering and less an experience mm. of integration beautiful exactly <laughs> I've had this experience through my parkour practice of, um, yeah, an ego, ego death, right? Um, not a complete ego death or anything, but, but there are moments where the, the, the tree and myself sort of uh, we come into a level of relationship where the dividing line becomes blurred. Mm. And there's a deep euphoria that is associated with that. And I believe that um, my understanding of yoga practice is that Ultimately, the goal of the practice is to reach that sort of, um, uh, what is, uh, my friend John Rebecca describes it really beautifully, he says something about, you know, um, radiant at one minute, right? Uh, radiant at one minute, yeah, beautiful. That when you're, when you're, when you have done your seated practice and you, you know, you've gone through training your monkey mind and everything, uh, that you can reach this state where the sense of your separation from things disappears and that what replaces it um, is kind of a spirit experience of deep love that uh, that sort of gets rid of some of yeah some of our ego and people seem to really enjoy that it seems to, to have profound impacts on who they are over time in, in positive ways and yet it triggers a lot of people and yet it's not extremely widespread in the in the parkour world and and i think that's probably also partly due to the reason that you can get to that place you can get to that place on the mountain also through a parkour practice um and um yeah i think it just it what you say now inspires me to um to sort of uh, consider like because there then because this is this as soon as you say this i i'm also thinking that there's so much of the practice that doesn't 
get you to this place or there, there are so many people that are stuck in practices that doesn't feel like it's lifting them higher. So what are all the things that then get in the way of attaining that or experiencing that if only momentarily? And, and, and one of the things, you call it ego death, um, that, that I see get in the way a lot and that we can then probably uh, relate to what we're doing is that sense of heavy identification with one movement, tribe or another, heavy identification with one discipline or another. Because as soon as you identify that heavily with one, being a, a tracer or being a yoga teacher or yogi or whatever, there is a good amount of personality hooked on to that also. And, and what I often find and what I really use a lot of energy on in in our movement community is to keep asking people, do you practice what you are good at or what is good for you? And I remember we had that conversation and you said something that I thought was genius. You said, um, but yeah, but you know what we've been trained for throughout education system. We've been trained to specialize, to become better and better and better in order to eventually be able to send the highest invoice. That's basically the game we play and we play that for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, 20 years in a row. And then you enter a movement studio and they're asking you to not be the best. And that it's not uh, necessarily the goal for you to become better. Um, of course, that's, that, that's a pretty ambitious goal to be able to, to, to tweak that or to change that uh, understanding. But, but I really uh, appreciate you reminding me about like the, the conditioning we're living under. And at the same time, I want to keep asking people, do you practice what you're good at or what is good for you? And I think that's worthwhile asking yourself every half a year or whatever. Yeah, I, I was just listening to a, another podcast you did to kind of remind myself of, of your perspective and where you're coming from. And uh, I heard you say that, do you practice what, you, um, what, what you're good at or what is good for you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really resonated for me. I, I formulated it a little bit differently. I say um, the practice should serve you. You shouldn't serve your practice. Yeah. And, and you said that also in the same interview. You said something like, you know, you shouldn't exist to 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 serve yoga, right? Or to serve CrossFit. Oh, it totally. I mean, it's it's I, I sometimes in the yoga classes, I can see people getting so serious about a freaking yoga posture, and it's. It's, it's as if they think they were invented to satisfy that yoga posture or to come into that yoga posture. They'll, they'll tear their hamstrings to come into a full split. And it's like, where is the reward? It, mm -hmm. And that's really like, you need to, to turn things around there. So, so totally with you. For some reason, my brain goes on a weird tangent there, which is um, Jordan Peterson in his book, Maps and Meaning, talks about this idea of apprenticeship, right? Mm -hmm. that We, there are many strings that hold us all the time, right? Like we, we, we are, let's say we're aimed at free will, but, but actually, you know, when we look, there's always causes behind what we're doing, right? Yeah. And our, our capacity to express any kind of free wills, you know, if you accept that such a thing can exist, uh, in some sense that is through becoming aware of that, right? And, and taking on some discipline that allows us to sort of, take charge of it, right? And this is why he talks about the 
Pinocchio story, right? Pinocchio is how you is how you use the hero's journey to cut your strings and cease being a marionette, become a real boy, right? Mm. Um, but what he talks about in this book is that culturally we need an apprenticeship period. We have to, we, we don't know who we are, right? We don't know what drives us and what motivates us and what, what, um, what our unique identity is until we subsume it in something else. We have to subsume ourselves in the culture before we're ready for, for the vision quest, right? Where we come back with our little piece of ourselves, right? Where we're, we're offering to the world. And so I think, I think there's something interesting in that line of thought. And the reason that that particular passage from Maps of Meaning pops into my head, because, you know, I think that you and I have both, we've both taken the identity of being a parkour athlete or taken the identity of being a yogi in your case, or in my case, being a martial artist, right? And we've, we've existed within that mm-hmm. to the point where, where it was central. And then we've reached a point where, where we realized that it didn't serve us to have that at the center. And so we can, we can look back from this perspective and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. But maybe we can't get where we are without having done that. Totally. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, um, I'm very inspired, or at least for the past three, four years, been very inspired from, uh, from Ramdas that died one and a half years mm. ago. We've recently had a huge wall painting done of Ramdas here. And he says, you have to be someone in order to become no one. Yeah. Uh, so there is a lot of somebody training, which is what we all take in. And probably the two of us, we had a lot of somebody going on while we were at the peak of our parkour training and everything was identified around being that character and and then from there once you have established a strong sense of self which is also just what a kid is going through being born to some extent like nobody and then growing into somebody and then again at some point like you call the the vision quest or whatever there is that that calling back to a nobodiness that is then not separate from others or hopefully less separate from others and i think that's extremely important to be aware of both in in parenting but also in coaching that that you because then what what you then realize is that you need to make people completely fall in love with the practice and to think that the practice is the most important in the world that there is nothing more important than that's then sticking this demitour right now. Mm-hmm. Being able to nail that demitour right now should be the most important. And then at the same time, if you're a good coach, then you're able to make them see also how ridiculous it all is, like how little it matters. But if you can't get them to fall in love with that and to make that the most important, then they'll also not get the effect of, of, of disattaching from it or non-attaching from that same practice. Um, yeah. I believe for the English speakers, when you say demi tour, that's a uh, uh, turn vault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's uh, not used in the states. <laughs> in the states, we, we didn't we didn't adopt all the French terminology. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a Jungian idea that, in some sense, like we can only become free by voluntarily becoming a slave to something first. Mm. We have to deeply serve something and be, be completely, um, you know, take on obligation, right? 
in order and to we can't to escape until we realize we're in prison. So that's yeah. the next step. So the, the interesting thing as a coach then is, I think that there is there's a trap where you never leave the apprenticeship, right? And yeah. we can see we can see people who 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 are who perhaps they're just not there on the journey yet. But you might look at them and say, "Oh wow, you're still you're still in that place, right?" Mm -hmm. And and it seems to no longer be serving you, right? I don't see growth. I see a sense of stagnation. I see a sense of of, of frustration, right? Of, of perhaps a, an implicit realization that there should be something more, but but you're attached to the where you're at and it's not serving you. And and then also I see a lot of people who they reach that stage with a practice, whatever practice it is, where um, the apprenticeship no longer serves them, but they can't see past it. And then they just drop, right? They leave it. They leave the practice behind and they go somewhere else. And um, sometimes they start the process over and over and just repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, and sometimes they sort of descend into a life that is free of practice that doesn't have the meaning that they had, but they can't get it back. Hmm. So I'm curious for your thoughts at the moment on how do we guide that? How do we, how do we recognize someone who's in the place where they need to, to center their identity on the practice and say, okay, we'll serve this for you and we'll bring you through it. But we want to keep this blinking light saying yes, but right. Hmm. You know, uh, yeah, the doubt to be named is not the eternal doubt, right? So this is your doubt right now, but don't become attached to it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a brilliant question, and I think that's that's really what makes um, yeah. That's probably I don't know if that's what makes the difference between an instructor and a coach, or between a coach and an actual teacher or guidance that you're able to hold that space to make them both fall in love. With the practice and also see how ridiculous it is at the same time um, but i just I, I i remember some years ago i saw someone who had just perfected uh, the arm balance in uh, the one arm hand balance in in the danish community and there was exactly what you said this sense of stuckness i could see that 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 trip wasn't lifting him higher and mm -hmm. if you go to the tantra yoga that's that's the core uh, core distinguisher between how you should spend your time is this lifting you higher enough and it might become more and more stable more and more subtle what you do there but if if, if it's not opening something else in you at the same time it really doesn't impress me and i think that has been healthy for me coming from a parkour background into the yoga world because yoga the physical practice is relatively unimpressive like when you've been in dancing you've been in parkour you know what <laughs> What the potentials are of a human body so you really can be impressed with yeah with very little of the physical practice in yoga so it was never really addictive to me i appreciate the physical practice i sense that it's good for my body but but it's very hard for me to really really get a boner out of out of seeing the the, the physical practice of yoga so i yeah I'm, I'm totally with you how can we as coaches as mentors better help guide that practice and i think one of the things that really helps for me is that we now have a community that is so diverse when it comes to practices we decided to create a community that was not defined by one practice but rather through a mindset of how we we go into the practices and for that reason 
I believe we've lowered the threshold for people to move into other practices that might at this point suit them better. And also the fact that you probably have beginners in every class because it's such a diverse community. So there'll be someone who's done parkour their whole life that are now there for the first time at a yoga practice. And there's something very unarmoring about doing, being a very serious yogi and then having Hulk next to you that is sweating and fighting to get through. There's something very unarmoring about that. And I think that challenges your, your own sort of identification with being that expert yogi. So, so it sort of helps you to crack you open that there is someone next to you who's not completely caught as opposed to being around a group of experts where they're all so identified. Like you can see it when you come into some yoga studios, it's so tight. It's, it's like you can feel so much of their identity is just invested in how they roll out that mat or how they breathe or whatever it is. And it gets dry. It really gets dry because you see they're perfecting a yoga sequence and it's like building a prison at the same time. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like we've had a very parallel evolution in a lot of ways, like obviously differences in the path, but uh, it's striking how similar some of the stuff is. Like I, uh, so I started parkour a year after you, right? And then I got into CrossFit. Now I did all the, the you know, we did the conditioning stuff. We went over to, um, to Ohio to the first American rendezvous and met Kazuma and um, Stefan and, you know, uh, Forrest and, and Dan and we did wonderful ages and ages of conditioning and then we came back it was funny you called it a macho culture like when we came back um, like we were doing this in our classes and every single woman we ever had in a class would cry right <laughs> just um, but uh, you know it, it, we know that it comes from a military place we know that the David and Jan and Williams and uh, Fung and Chow, like they all came from backgrounds that had like deep military histories and martial art, old school martial arts traditions, right? Um, but I did that and then I went to CrossFit and uh, I didn't pass out, but I got rhabdo twice and I had a panic attack putting on my first parkour competition. You know, I had all these problems with my body. Like CrossFit for me, the period, like I got to world-class in some some CrossFit, not not the longer workouts, but the shorter workouts I could really smash. Like I was doing, I can't remember what it was, like Fran in 217 or something. It was fast. Uh, it's all, it's all, it's all blur in the, in, in my world now. But, uh, but the weird thing was that I gained, actually, I got fatter while that was happening, um, which was strange. And then, um, and then, uh, in like the 18 months after I left CrossFit, I tore ligaments in both my feet, subluxated my cuboid bone, had two back spasms, a panic attack, and then tore my Achilles tendon. Oh, and I subluxated my shoulder. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so th this, this story is, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, of uh, resonance between your experience and mine. And yeah, we both can... I just want to zoom in on that particular place because I guess now looking back at that sort of year of horror of injuries, you can appreciate that quite a bit, that that was the case, that you had that knock knock. Yeah. It, 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 it seems yeah. like I just, it's just very few injuries at this point that I can't deeply appreciate. And that it's as long as you don't have the mindset 
as, as long as you're really deeply identified to one uh, type of practice and your goal is to perfect that, then of course an injury sucks because that's a setback. But if yeah. your trip is, is, is not that, but if your trip is to, to get to know that one you're hanging out with every day, if it's to, to release attachment, then that's, that's, that's quite good news. And I think that's part of also uh, being that teacher that, that, that helps people to navigate that you sh like show your own track record of injuries and, and hopefully show that didn't just get you more tight on, on that particular thing you were doing. Yeah, there's a, I really like something Louis West said, he said, never waste an injury, right? And so I've learned a lot about health and about taking care of yourself. And, you know, uh, I still regret sometimes the injuries because it feels like, you know, if, uh, if I had had, uh, I might've achieved more skill-wise if I hadn't had such a rough road health-wise, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm entering, you know, I'll be 39 in a week, you know, as I see my 40s on the horizon, um, like there's a, there's a sense of like, okay, well, how much more can I get, you know, before, mm -hmm. before, before we start to go down the hill? And, and the injuries, you know, took that away. But as a teacher and as a coach, they've been extraordinarily fruitful, right? It's like there's so much insight that's been generated from them. And uh, yeah, I've been pretty good with my body uh, in the interim. Yeah, and I think but, uh, amazing practice still. I'm, I was so inspired to, to practice with you. Yeah. In 19, it's just this big strong body that just kills trees and it's, it's it's amazing it was really humbling to be with you uh it's uh yeah there's a lot of like very light athletes in the parkour world in denmark uh, which where, where i can easily uh justify while uh, why i can't move the way they do um yeah. but i was really impressed to see how you've you've managed to juggle that that <laughs> flesh you're born with <laughs> yeah <laughs> That was funny. Um, I was I was in the UK and I was training with uh, Bobby Addo and Tag Addo. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably most of the people on the on the podcast will recognize that they were very big deals at, at one point in the, the history of the parkour community. Really influential, and wonderful athletes, and, and like I showed up and they just looked at me like gobsmacked at how big I was. Like, they're like, "Man, you must be like ninety kilos." <laughs> like try one hundred and three. Like what? Nobody's that big. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did. It's interesting though because I feel like parkour athletes are getting bigger, right? Because we're not all twenty anymore, right? Like there are more guys who are ninety kilos, you know, hundred kilos, because there are, there's more guys who are thirty, you know, and strength training for years. And, you know, um, one of my students, Nate Weston, I think he's uh, like probably ninety-five kilos, ninety kilos, um, mm. uh, ninety-two, something like that. Um, he's only in his early twenties, but he's tall. He's, you know, uh, probably 1.9, 1.8. Yeah. About 1.9 meters. I'm trying to do the math in my head. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're being very, um, and yeah, I remember like when I used to compete in parkour, I would usually outweigh the next guy in the competition by 40 pounds, right. By 15 kilos or something like that. Um, anyways, that's a bit of a tangent. But thank you, I appreciate it. And, and I think it is important for people to recognize that. that uh... But I'm interested just in like what, when you're saying that, that still there is that, that part of you that are like 
but was it really necessary with that injury? Was it yeah, yeah. like almost as if did did I really need to take that part of the curriculum, or was that an was that an error that that particular part that should have shouldn't have happened? There was a lot that made me grow, but but that injury in particular, I think that's it's so like I I, I feel that myself right now. I have a back injury that I got last summer, and two weeks ago I was down squatting with a few friends, and it it broke up again, and. Yeah. And I'm, I'm struggling to find a, a meaningful frame around that. Uh, and it's tempting to label it like, like, an, like an error. Uh, I just find that whether it is an error or not, it's just, it just, it, it is an unproductive way, regardless of it being right or not. Uh, it's an unproductive way, as I see it, to view anything uh, in life because it puts on that, that pair of glasses that sees um yeah what is not supposed to be uh and I'll, i also just want to challenge you because i mean there's like we might have been more identified with what we do but at the same time i can also be i can easily get caught by yeah a lot of it is not important but this particular trick that's fucking important and that's a part <laughs> of my spiritual quest to nail that one so it's 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 it's, it's like it's all it's so easy to still to be caught by it and to be caught by like how much can I achieve before I'm 40 or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. like that voice, I I dance with it every day. Um, I think it's just nice to catch ourselves in it. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily wrong either. I've been thinking about this recently. Like the mindset that looks at an injury as an opportunity is very important. Um, but I also think sometimes it's okay to grieve what was lost by the injuries, mm. right? And I think like when you're faced with a problem, it's really important to, to step up to the plate to, to, to gain what can be gained out of it, right? Mm. Um, but I also think there's some wisdom in, in being able to say, man, it would have been nice if I didn't have to go through that struggling, right? Mm. And like, I, I've learned, like I've learned the lesson of that struggle and I can pass that lesson on. And I can also say, um, that hurt, you know? Mm. And, yeah. and it took something from me that, 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 uh, that I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to lose. Right? And I, I think that those two, that's something that I've been processing recently, how grief around, um, mm -hmm. uh, not so much the, the injury stuff, but more um, some professional things, some relationships and the way that those relationships went, where like after, after the failure, it was okay here's how I'm going to own it. Here's how I'm going to figure everything out. And then like 10 years later, I'm like, man, I got fucked over. Right. Like, and, and, and is that, is that, uh, is that betraying the insight? It's like, no, I've, I've processed the insight. Right? I've, I've internalized it. I'm not making the same mistakes that I was making. And so now it's like the grief can come out and it can be a part of my healing process to say, Hey, you know, there was also, there was also a place where, where I was taken advantage of, or people were, you know, who, sh who might've had my back didn't, and that really hurt me. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And I think there's also with the idea I'm proposing, if that is taken to the extreme, there is a potential spiritual bypassing in that, like not acknowledging that, Yeah. for example, the Corona lockdown fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, and, 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 and I really feel like it has been, to be honest, to really say what we miss 
what we haven't had this year. And then once that is done and once you've been authentic to that part of you that just hates it, then you go to the battlefield and you see what dragons needs to be slayed, what you need to come up with to make this a bearable life through 2020. So yeah, I'm totally with you. And, uh, and I think it's just bringing a beautiful, uh, like bringing the human <laughs> into uh, a theoretical yeah. principle. Um, but I just, I just really sense that 2020 has really strengthened that muscle that, that is, is, is just like hardwired to see where there is an opportunity in this. And, and there's been so many obstacles that, that that part of me that would like to feel sorry for myself for being a little bit like, oh, this sucks. They're just, and a lot of times it's just been crisis to a point where it's like, we just need to solve it. It's been like acute, we need to change the setup again and again, and we need to reschedule. So, so there just hasn't been time for that. I wouldn't call it romantic, but, or like the ruminating, it's just been like, now is, now is action time and it's forward time. So I think I was a little bit probably semi hurt by that mindset right now uh, that it's just um, solving and just seeing why is this happening for us? And again, why is this again happening for me? Yeah, a few thoughts sort of swirling for me. One is like, I think a big influence for me and in my thinking and my approach to these things has been, um, well, Nassim Taleb and Jordan Peterson, right? mm -hmm. we can talk about both of them, but Nassim Taleb has this idea of anti-fragility, right? Mm -hmm. You, anti-fragile things are things that gain from disorder. They become stronger mm -hmm. when exposed to stressors and or biological organisms are this, but everything's only anti-fragile to a point, mm -hmm. right? There's a, every system has a breaking point, right? And you, you, can, you can pump disorder into it. Um, and, you know, when, when COVID happened, right, it was like, be anti-fragile, see the opportunity, smash through this. And, you know, that mindset had served me really well in a lot of ways in the past. And, you know, another thing that was in my head was, you know, this, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson says, um, find the biggest thing you can carry and carry it and that'll give your life meaning. Well, I found some really big things to carry last year. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't as anti-fragile as I thought, right? I went past it, right? So perhaps a better guide, you know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has that idea of the flow channel, right? When, you're, when, you're, when your challenge level exceeds your stress level too much, you start to regress. It's like you can't, you can't lift the heaviest weight you've ever lifted today, lift it again tomorrow, and lift it the next day. You have to find that, that downside of the cycle too. And that's how we stay close And so, so for me, it's like, you know, I think in many ways, externally, at least 2020 is probably looks like the most successful year of my life. Right? Like I made a big impact, and, you know, mm. grew my network and, uh, and it was absolutely miserable and I never wanted to experience anything like it again. Right. And so I'm a lot less interested at this stage of my life in, um, in the heaviest thing. I'm interested in carrying the optimally heavy. Right. Totally. Finding that balance, um, because, and, and so I'll, I'll tie in another idea here, which is something I like, uh, you know, which is all kind of integrating in my head, I guess. Uh, but Paul Check, who I mentioned before, or I mentioned in the preamble, you know, has been an influence on me recently. He has this idea: there are always three options, right? There is 
the optimal thing that you can do, mm. right? There's a suboptimal thing, something that's going to, to um, you know, it's going to move things, but not necessarily in a way that is good for you, good for the people around you, good for, for everybody. Um, and then there's nothing, right? You're choosing to do nothing. And uh, I don't think that I was, I don't think I had a lot of space in me before this year for the for allowing the option of nothing right mm. and and nothing can be very very powerful right it can be the choice to step away and say okay we're you know we're in a conflict right now um and we can just hash it out mm. and we can fight through it but maybe it'll be way more costly to hatch right now than if we step away and cool off and then come back with a different mindset and i'm always the guy like when my wife and i fight it's like you know I want it done now. Like we're going to get to the bottom of this and figure it out. And it's a real lesson to be able to say, like let that almost yin space into it as part of the process. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, that's been a lesson for me in the last year is like, sometimes the, the answer to the problem is to say like, if, if I don't have a good solution, can I survive no solution for a little while until there's a good solution for me? Totally. Yeah, and this has also been one of our lessons. I, they really resonates for me. I think mainly we've been in trying to find optimal solutions again and again. But what we've yeah. also seen is that in this highly chaotic environment that 2020 was, the, what you find a solution for today is, is maybe completely irrelevant tomorrow. And, and for that reason, you spend so many resources on something that has a very limited effect because you need to change it the day after again. And in that, in that sense, sitting and waiting is probably less satisfying for that part of you that wants to do stuff and wants to take action. But for your organization, for your own health, much, much smarter. Uh, but I think yeah. that's, uh, yeah, I think that a lot of us are struggling with that. We like to like to take action. I can't just sit here, but, but maybe, maybe I was supposed to. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I hear you on that one. And also here and there, and I've seen from outside that you've been, yeah, I've just, I've just seen the, the Instagram part mainly, <laughs> or the, <laughs> which is always impressive, but no. uh, even more impressive when you know the heavy lifting that is going on behind the scenes. Um, I, um, I don't know if that's, it's probably a little bit, um, I don't know, correct me if you don't want to spin it in that direction, but I think one of the, the learnings, I guess there's a lot of professionals listening to the, this podcast also. And one of the reasons I think that we've been able to, 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 to navigate in like constant coming up with new solutions again and again has really been that we have calibrated and anchored in a community that is not a community like we say we have a community, um, but which is really like an active, creative community. Um, and 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 I've really I've really seen the value of that this year. Um, we've spent an awful lot of time on investing in a, a sense of community, like a really felt sense of community in Rad. Um, which means that when I think when Corona hit, oh, then a lot of businesses learned whether 
the people that they sell their goods to or services to were seeing themselves as customers, co-producers or community members. And for those that had them as customers, they saw their customers leaving because there was no loyalty. There was no, we're creating this together. But yeah. what we saw was that everyone, and like really without exception, everyone wanted us to come through this together. And because we had created a habit of whatever it was, we're building this together. And we had taught them again and again, you're not consumers, you're creators. And there's something inherently unworthy about being have to fit into this consumer role and i guess at the heart of each human there is a creative soul there is somebody who wants to be partaking in what is happening what is being built so what we've seen is again and again people have showed up so they during the first lockdown we've just taken over this huge building everyone was sent at home people would come wearing a face mask and helping us to build up the new uh, rooms we just got so they would come and paint they would come and just just help out in whatever way they could. Um, and they were growing because they were still creating. Although there was a lockdown, they were still a part of it. They kept, they stayed plugged in. Um, and I, I, I've really, like, we could never have lifted like we lifted this year and still feeling sort of vital at the end of this if we hadn't, if it hadn't been for that community. And I think... That's, that's like from an organizational perspective, community makes sense, but also from a practice perspective. And I know you uh, encourage a lot that in your uh, retreats and so on, that there is that sense, you, you do sit around the fire, there is sharings, there will be um, vulnerable moments. And, and all of that, I just see how it fuels the practice, like by a factor 10, if my ambition is that when people come into what they enter a yard and already as they enter the yard or maybe when they think about what on the way there there's on the bicycle they're starting to come into a mode of yoga when they come into the yard they'll meet people that will remind them about how amazing they are like that'll ask them just by the way they are greeted to take off that first couple of layers which means by the time they come to their yoga mat they're already so much more receptive to yoga so that the practice has, has, has already started. I mean, in a lot of yoga classes, you need to spend the first 30 minutes on convincing people that they're worthy, that they can still be there, although they brought that old yoga mat or wearing non-yoga clothes or whatever. And like the chances that that yoga is going to be transformative is so limited. So if we can build a culture that is really supportive, that is really making each of these people, um, yeah, trust that they belong, then the job of the teacher is gonna be simple. It's gonna be like, come into a dog stretch and you have it right there. It's, it, the job is done already. Um, I would love to hear your perspectives on community building and, and how it's talked about a lot and maybe practiced to a, to a lesser degree. Yeah, um, with Evolving Play, we've evolved this idea that, um, Fundamentally, what, what people are looking for through whatever practice, whether it's yoga or parkour or something else, is a sense of meaning, something that's, mm. that, that, and, and we kind of see meaning as coming in two, two areas, right? It, it, tap, it connects you immediately to something that feels meaningful, right? Like being in a flow state feels meaningful no matter how you access it. Um, 
And then there's also the aspect of it transforms you over time. It's like you can you can see who you are becoming and you are continually becoming something that that is what you'd like to become. Right? Mm. Uh, I was listening to an interview with my friend between my friend Nick Winkleman and uh, John Ravaki and talking about spirituality in a non-supernatural sense. And they're saying that that when you use an analogy, you're collaborating with your past self, right? Mm. And that in some sense, what spirituality is, is a collaboration between the present self and the future self, right? Mm. This is what we're looking for. And they highlighted the idea that, that we need to have two things they talked about, which is we need to have mindfulness in that process. And we need to have movement because we have to connect the body. But then within involvement with play, we have two other aspects of that, which is we have to have nature um, or the environment and we have to have community, right? Because it, um, in, like in cognitive science, they've identified these the four E's of, of cognition, right? To be a cognitive agent, you have to be embodied. You have to have a structure that allows you to interact with the world. Mm. Um, and that body-mind is not separable, right? It's, a, it's an illusion. And that body has to exist within an environment that's an embeddedness, right? How, how do you exist with this environment? And this is why I think parkour is such a profound practice. It's, mm. it's the practice of how are you, you know, in relationship to the, to the environment? What is that relationship? Mm. And then you have to act it out, right? You have to actually take action and action. That's enacted, the enacted aspect of cognition. And the last aspect is that you are extended, which is that a mind is a mind in a field of other minds, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's only can truly form itself within that space. So, what you think, what I think, they're um, they don't arise from within us independently, completely, right? They exist within this broader sphere of ideas that are being generated by a, a neural net, and we're we're constantly tapped into this net of 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 the broader mind space of the human beings around us. Mm. But even beyond that, we're connected to the mind space of the animals and the birds. And, you know, maybe even you could talk about the nervous system of the, of the soil and the nervous system of the trees. For me, that's what spirituality is. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's deepening that capacity for connection to those things and integrating the aspects of the self um, and the aspects of the self and community with other human beings and with the world around mm. us. So, so that's, I guess, the big, the big, the big story right there. But in, in particular, what I've noticed over time is that everything comes down to relationships, right? Mm -hmm. like people, most people stick with whatever physical practice they do because of the relationships that it affords them. Most businesses that survive over the long term you can be a sociopath and you can manipulate people and you can make a quick buck, but it's not a sustainable long-term strategy. You have to move from ecosystem to ecosystem. But the people who are really successful in the long run are those who cultivate relational wealth, right? Mm. Um, my friend Javon Langford said, all wealth ultimately is relational wealth. I think you might say uh, all real wealth is relational wealth because you can you can be a sociopath and apparently become president of the United States of America, but uh, I don't think that the internal sensation of being a wealthy, abundant person is actually 
being felt for that person, no matter what power they're accumulating. Yeah. Yeah. So that's quite a rant. So I'll, <laughs> I'll let you. No, but it's it's um, just taking it back then to so so if if the key driver for the people we meet, the people that join a community, is actually um, the desire to belong, yeah. then I think we have an even greater um, obligation to secure that the practice they get is the one that fuels them. Because we know that it gets really sticky then because you land in a community that makes you feel seen for the first time of your life and that makes you feel that you belong. But that practice after the first three years is actually not floating your boat that greatly anymore. So how can we either as coaches make that evolve in a way where it's fresh again, where it's juicy, or are we ready to, to let go of the students? Or can we create a community that, that, um, that holds more practices that where the threshold, because it's inside of a community with a range of different practices, the thresholds are lower and it's gonna be easier to stay plugged into the community, but now you're just sitting on a pillow for the next year. Uh, or whatever it is. My friend John Reiki has this term, an ecology of practices, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever, whether we're using yoga or parkour or meditation or whatever it is, the thing that we're trying to get at um, is not the practice. It's the, what the practice affords us. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the, the ineffable Tao, right? We're, we're aimed at that. Um, the truth is that our attachment to any one particular um, lens or any one particular path can mislead us. Mm. I, have, I have this belief that every transformative practice is a two-edged sword, right? It, it can cut us, right? It can, a practice is, is, is a path and it's a trap, mm. right? So we, this is what I think is exciting about the idea of a movement culture, right? Is this idea that we, that we can stop being partisans of, of a particular movement practice and we can start seeing more deeply what we're seeking and being open to a broader set of practices that can serve. And we can, even if, you know, like I went to dance, right? And I learned some things from dance. And now, I mean, it's funny. Now my practice, it's like strength training and parkour. That's what I'm doing right now. And soon I'll be back in the martial arts, right? And these are the things that I've been doing since, mm. since 2006, right? Um, and I, I do, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll be doing some dance. Maybe I'll do some other things. But I, I see myself being like very deep in MMA, parkour, and and. Uh, and, and strength training for a while, again. But by, by opening my lens, I come back to those practices with a renewed understanding of how to take what I'm looking for out of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and, and, and I think that's, that's like the deepening perspective that, that you have a pair of eyes that is able to see a lot of opportunities for growth inside of that framework. And yeah then you don't need to go and consume another practice. Then you can actually stay there. 
and we have these these shoppers that keeps going around and just scratching a little bit in the surface and then there's another trip and another hype uh, and that's I guess that's equally maybe even more lost than those that are just dry inside of one practice um, so yeah I think they can also easily becomes in the movement culture it also easily creeps in that you have to sort of be completely holistic to be the right mover or whatever which is like like anything else complete like another dog yeah it's, it's 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 just losing it or not 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 getting what we're there for when that fundamentalism creeps in and it's so interesting to see the human brain how it's easily when i show people the movement triad in rad and say you're either moving alone together with other people or in relation to the environment then without me saying anything just having presented that they sit and think the people listening that ah yeah, yeah i get that i can be anywhere but i know that Yeba thinks it's best to be right in the middle where you're sort of a superman of all of it and i like i couldn't be i couldn't be less interested in that if it floats your boat to be right there in the middle where you're sort of a super diverse mover good for you but if right now your work is to sit there on the pillow and that lifts you great really really great um so so i think it's uh, yeah it's wonderful to hear that you're finding like again and again, bouncing these three practices. And I think what I, where I would like people to sharpen the lenses is like, how can the practice, and that's what we said earlier, how can the practice serve you? So I spoke to some, some of the, a, a few of the women actually in the yoga teacher training I taught uh, recently, we were talking about, um, about muscular energy, the ability to strengthen up in the postures, to not just sink into them, to not only soften, to not only expand, but to also lift and spread the toes, tighten the muscles. And in the Anusara world, the yoga tradition that I'm coming from originally, it's called muscular energy. And it was so wonderful to see some of these people and also hear afterwards, like people sharing really deeply how they are having challenges with border setting, like the whole Me Too shows that there is a huge problem when it comes to being able to understand boundaries uh, for men, and that's the main problem, but also secondly, to be able to set boundaries and to express them clearly. And to see that a practice like muscular energy could just, just strengthening up the body can give people a sense, a, a, a stronger sense of integrity and ability to say no or to say stop. And... And, and to seeing like how they're like these super important traits as, as warriors, as people, as, as heroes that, that we can practice in a little ecosystem, a little safe ecosystem like yoga. So that next time you meet someone in this, when you're out partying that doesn't get your limits, you can be very, very clear. And you've practiced that on your yoga mat in a safe place. I think that just keeps amazing me how potent our practice is when we allow ourselves to see the potential, when we, when we really, really uh, create a space where people dare to say, because I wouldn't have had this insight if it wasn't a safe place where people felt they could share with me what they were going through. So, so creating that community where it is and then the potent practices, finding those teachers that can make people believe that they're gonna follow them, that this yeah. is the most important in the world.
what strikes me or what, what resonates with me or where I, I want to go with that is I really love this, this idea that, again, I get from Jordan Peterson, but it's, there's a, a, a masculine and a feminine pole of development, right? And you can, you can view them as, um, like, if you think about the role that, uh, that parents tend to play with children, mm-hmm. um, the feminine pole of that is nurturance, right? It's making sure that the child is protected and has what it needs to grow. Uh, and the masculine pole is to encourage the child, to help the child step outside of its boundaries and to push it. Right? We see this in rough and tumble play, right? It is predominantly fathers who engage in lots of rough and tumble play with children. Mm. Um, and there's probably some people who feel a lot uncomfortable with the gender, uh, gendered language that I'm using. But this isn't to say that... Um, that, that it is necessarily a father who encourages a child or necessarily a mother. And in fact, a good father or a good mother does both, right? You know, when I'm not here, my wife roughhouses with our children, right? And I do lots of nurturing, right? I wipe their butts and make them food and comfort them when they fall down and cry, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to be a hyper male, like get down on the floor and do me 30, uh, give me 30 all the time, right? We have to have that. Um, mm. this isn't, this isn't to say that we should be bound by these ideas, right? It is only to say that, that those poles tend to associate with, with the, with the father and with the mother mm. and not always, but generally. And then we have those poles within ourselves. Now, I, I had a perception of myself from the years as a lazy person, right? That I wasn't good at being hardworking. And then I noticed that I kept working myself to the point that I broke. And that was very confusing. How could I be a lazy person if I was willing to train so hard that my tendons would fall apart, right? I was willing to train so hard that I would get rhabdomyolysis, that I would be sore for weeks on end, that you know my sleep would be disturbed by the pain in my body. Or then later, you know, as I put on events in the parkour community, it's like I was working 100 hours to prepare for these events. Mm. And I noticed that, that, that as much as I valued and admired hard work, um, that it was kind of crushing me whenever I let it become my soul guide, right? Mm. So I had this, this idea. Um, how do I balance myself between self-discipline and self-care? Mm. Right, and then later I had this realization that um, that it's not just, and you could see those as the masculine and the feminine pole again, right? Discipline aligns with cur- encouragement and um, and care with nurturance, pretty obviously. But then I had this realization that it's not just a balance between the masculine and the feminine; um, it's actually getting more mature in the expression of both. Because when you don't understand yourself or you don't love yourself deeply, it's very hard to actually tell the difference between disciplining yourself and abusing yourself. Mm. And equally, it's very hard to tell the difference between caring for yourself and being indulgent toward yourself. Mm. And 
in this, you know, and so you can look at this as how you treat yourself. You can look at this as how you treat your children. You can look at this as how you treat your students, right? Mm -hmm. In all of these places, we are always needing to both find a balance that serves us, serves the people that we're working with, and also always be looking for what's the higher expression of this principle, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, I always cringe when people say a safe space because, mm -hmm. because a safe space is a space that only has nurturance, only has care, doesn't have discipline, doesn't have courage. So I want a brave space, right? Because, because being able to, to talk about something that's difficult isn't simply a matter of feeling safe. It's a matter of feeling the call to adventure in a sense. It's a, it's a, of being willing to answer that. And I feel like a lot of times when we hear this language around self space, it's actually moving people in the opposite direction. It's moving people inwards towards a place where they're, they're more easily threatened by, by the things outside of them. So. Brave space. I like that. Yeah. That's great. And I would, yeah, I guess the qualities that you want there to be in your brave space is, is probably what I would invite into my safe space, but I, I see how it's been, um, yeah, sort of deranged a little or has lost lost potency because it's supposed to be so safe and so soft that there is no room for growth in it. There's no room for honest reflection or feedback. So um, so for sure, uh, I I hear you. Uh, I hear you on that. And I think just to 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 connect it to the practices again, because yeah. we're, then I think when the movement culture becomes uninteresting for me, it's, it's when there isn't any higher aspiration, when it's uh, impressive movers that appear sort of stuck and where there's not a uh, therapeutic or a spiritual quest uh, right at the same time. And I think, um, like heightening the awareness of why are we in it is, is, is the best we can do as coaches and making it easy to, to, to navigate that and, and to not get it to a holy place where we get to completely detached from the bodies or whatever and are starting to tell stories about how holy we are. But we're having this sort of vital, fun, solid community uh, that that is also ready to be completely yeah completely ready to fall apart uh, next to the person you've been practicing parkour with like can can we strike that balance can we find that and i think that's quite beautifully put between the the genders also uh the ability to hold and to be hold uh, and and to allow both and what i felt was that for sure when i practiced parkour back in the days I was only holding. I was in the business school. I was working in consulting and I was doing parkour and I was only holding. And the outcome at the end was that I, that I passed out, that I fainted. So I couldn't hold myself. And it's, it seemed like such a archetypical teaching I needed to, to, to get there and that I need to get once in a while where I'm carrying or when I'm carrying too much. And can we create a space where it's not so serious our whole personality trip that we can't put it out there that you're feeling comfortable right now with sitting and sharing parts of where you're getting caught and where I can share that. I think that's, and as a community leader, of course, being able to 
put that forward to not be that completely uh, well-cooked guru that has no none of those human traits in him or herself anymore but really like just sharing the journey just getting caught again and again together with your students seeing that we're all just trying to navigate it and and then having these fine practices that are really like holding up a mirror again and again to see yourself more clearly um that's yeah what a privilege to be a part of creating that it's funny before this interview for some reason i was i, I just listened to the other podcast interview because i oh, view this out there i was thinking about you and about there's something soft about fault right about your vision it's 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 a it's a very um seems like a place that's oriented towards towards creating a lot of warmth right mm. to be touched yeah and uh maybe a little touchy feeling right and, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, you know, how is it that Hulk, right? Like, look, you're this muscular, cut, powerful-looking man, powerful jawline. You know, you're uh, hyper-masculine-looking. And you've got, uh, you know, Viking ancestors supposedly in your blood. Like, how, how does this happen, right? But I think that the story is that you, you overdosed on your yen, right? Totally. Totally. And, and this is this like connects. I think it's it's useful because I was just laughing at that. Idea. There's this there's this this thing about Yepi that is so so it kind of like smacks you in the face. And then there's what you're actually doing, which is kind of in the opposite direction, in a way, mm. just a little bit. And then, um, and then this thing, uh, a former friend of mine said that was I think it's a really profound insight. A lot of times we prove, we choose our practices because they feed our neuroses. Mm -hmm. Whatever direction we tend to go already, we do more of. Right? For myself, for instance, um, I got really into deadlifting. I was really strong in deadlifting. And I got lots of injuries when I was doing lots of deadlifting. And then I went to train with the school and they told me, look, your, your nervous system is set up in such a way and your body is structured in such a way that it's very good. It's very easy for you to get good at deadlifting. Um, and it's driving your body into an imbalance that makes you way more likely to get injured. And so you should never deadlift again, right? Um, which doesn't mean that deadlift's a bad exercise. It's a bad exercise for me. Uh, you know, within a specific context. And what's striking about you is that you, you got, you got smacked down, right? Mm. And you were able to say, Oh, okay. What's the other side of it? How do I bring in the soft, the end, uh, the warm and cuddly, right? Mm. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys call it in Hugo in, uh, in Denmark? <laughs> True. So, so, so here's the question, because that was a lot of thoughts without a question. The question is, what I think you're curious about, one thing that I think motivated you to want to have this conversation too is, how do we help people navigate practices such that they are not feeding their neuroses? Mm. So I want to turn that question on you. Like, I think that you're doing that and I think you want to articulate it. What is it at Hort, Hort that, is, um, that is allowing that to happen, right? How are you helping people not end up 
choked out by their own muscles. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for spilling it out. Um, and thanks for asking into it. I mean, I think I encourage all my teachers to be mainly students. I really expect them to show up for practices. I really expect them to be there on the mat next to other students. So I want to get rid of the hierarchy because as soon as there's that hierarchy uh, between teachers and students, the teachers get caught and the students also get caught in trying to want to be like a, a teacher, uh, which I think is, is one of the things. There are so many things that can uh, confuse us in this quest. There, 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 there are way too many. So I think it's really like it's a whole it's a whole ecosystem that you are trying to manage so it doesn't so it allows for that freedom where, where we don't come with our um, sort of pull towards feeding our neuroses, but where we are free to choose what we can feel inside that is, is nourishing us the most. Because I, I really do believe that whenever we're balanced, whenever we're calibrated, whenever we're in a healthy environment, we know what way to go. It's, it's, we, we can feel it, we expose ourselves to a practice. And that's also what I could feel there was there was a complete lack of flow in those last year of my parkour career. And I was not nurtured by it, but I was stuck with the community and I didn't want to leave them. So I kept feeding myself something that my body really didn't need. So creating um, an environment where it's easy to, to be exposed, where you are not valued by your expertise or your expertness. Um, I think, I mean, I mean, basically, if we, what we've covered so far, I think is so much around um, how the community can be supportive of it, how a multitude of practices can be support for it, how teaching students to navigate between the practices, not uh, in regards of what they're best at, but really what seems to float them the most, what allows them that quality of freedom. I think all of them are small sort of um, smaller aspects of how we can allow that, that freedom um, to choose what is good for us. And I think in my case, because I mean, I could also, after I, I passed out there, a, another path could have been to be what the fuck hadn't happened. I need to get back. I just lost my complete identity like a complete identity loss. I wasn't, I, I was, I was lying in hospital um, and I needed to, I was sitting on a bed. I needed to bend so deep forward that they could put in a syringe between my vertebras so they could take out the spinal or like liquid from the spinal cord. And I could feel like these small ticks down in my legs from that needle going in. And it was a, a, like a, a person in an internship doing it. So she didn't hit the first times and then a, uh, like a pro came in and did it first shot. But I was in a way at the most powerful part of my career and I've never felt more powerless. So, so, so daring to, to, to listen to that, like had I been, I, I allowed myself to lose that identity part that was me being that parkour guy. Um, and can we make it easy for people to let go of these 
these parts of them where they really hooked lost in some part of their personality and supporting that i think is really the the key and the key and i guess it was a I guess in, in the end, I was just lucky that it happened to me. And then I had the, the courage to let go of, of, that, of that old self, of the Hulk self. Hulk also means uh, to cry really loud. <laughs> Hulk is, uh, at Hulk is like, Rah! and uh, it was a joke that Hulk became Hulgan. <laughs> exactly. Um... I was thinking about that model that I was telling you about, about self-care, mm-hmm. self-discipline. And I had this realization that um, in order to, to achieve those things and to move towards maturity in those things, what we need is uh, self-love and self-knowledge. Right? You have to, you can't discipline yourself effectively or avoid abusing yourself if you, if you don't actually know who you are. We don't actually know what you need, right? Um, and nor can you really effectively recognize it uh, or provide it for yourself if you're not motivated by love, right? Mm. And and I turned that question inside on myself. And I said, well, what am I not good at? Right? And I was like, well, I'm definitely strongest at the self-knowledge piece, right? Like I think that, that one of, like I think, I have narcissistic tendencies, right? That's that's part of my suite of personality characteristics. And it's something that runs in my family and that you know, I've run into problems with in my life. But what has protected me is the ability to say, I have that, right? Mm-hmm. To say, okay, you know, I just showed up in a way that was selfish for my wife, right? And I'm gonna, and when she tells me that, I can be like, yeah, I did, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And now I'm gonna be able to work on doing it better, right? And so the self-knowledge aspect and the being able to effectively criticize myself has been critical for my own ability to grow. But if that's true, then, then the, the reciprocal is that the weaker side for me is the self-love, mm-hmm. which is a very strange thing because, um, because isn't being narcissistic a sort of an inflated sense of loving yourself, right? Feeling that you're special. True. But then I realized that that that's actually, that's the immature expression, right? The immature expression of self-love is to value yourself from the sense that you are special, to value yourself by setting up all these comparisons where you get to be better than other people. Mm. And that if you, if you were to treat your child like that, that would be abusive, right? If you look at your child and you're constantly saying, oh, my child's faster, smarter, better looking than other people, other kids Mm. and you make the way that you love that child conditional on that you're actually um creating an insecure attachment for that child Mm. and so that was quite a strange epiphany for me and then i was like asking myself this question like do i love myself Mm. not because i'm you know a great podcast host or, or a good parkour athlete or, or whatever. But do I love myself just because I'm going to be with me for the rest of my life? And it's my responsibility to love me, right? Just like I love my kids because they showed up and it's my responsibility to love them, right? What did you and answer to that question? 
Well, the answer is probably not as well as I should. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring that up is because I think that that's what you're trying to do with your, your, your place, is be the place that loves the student who comes in because it's the responsibility of the community to love them, whether they're great at what they do or not. And I think that's maybe see beautiful. Yeah, I'm just inspired to say that that is like, that is my key driver. Because what happens is once you have a culture that does that, it's not only you, but you have a culture that does that, then you see it in the eyes and the people are starting living up to that. They start to love themselves more <laughs> once they hear they're being reminded about how amazing they are. And it's a culture doing it. It's a culture that helps us to, 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 to step up or step into that light so we're getting the, the full, full-blown you instead of some half-hearted or a narcissistic version of you. We just get the, 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 pure, uh, the, the pure thing. And, and I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge motivation uh, for, for what I do and for what we've seen. And in the start, you just need to be there yourself and, and, and really love everyone. <laughs> and, and, and eventually you have a culture that can to some extent do that and then i think it's, it's amazing what you say that like that loving someone doesn't doesn't mean that you are not also uh, asking them to really commit to a practice far past their limits they can easily go hand in hand and i think it's beautiful to have the what did you say self-love and self-discipline yeah. and i think the self-discipline is really like that's hardwired into us from the parkour world there was less self-love uh, back in the days um, but but right now and I mean those that get through 2020 still standing to some extent they for sure have self-discipline uh, and I can easily see how the spiritual world and the more wishy-washy part of the spiritual world or the new age part is completely lacking that trait of self-discipline of delayed gratification of being able to to stand there to wake up I often see it also with people that are going on yet another ayahuasca trip or, or whatever, that is like, I appreciate it, great insights. If you're not able to get up and get your kid food next morning, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're lying to no one. It's so obvious that you're lost. Um, so so, so self-discipline, like some kind of little bit old school uh, deeds, I think is is quite quite timely to to uh, to to add a little bit of to the to the spiritual world in general. Um, so um, yeah, that's another. I, I keep bringing up his name, but that's another thing that I got from Peterson that I just I really love is this idea that that love contains discipline, right? I like, missed that one. Can you say it again? That love contains discipline. Yeah. That it's necessary to 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 offer discipline or to promote encouragement to really realize love, because um, Carl Rogers, the great you know psychologist, said, you know, your job as a as a friend or your job as a as a therapist is to offer unconditional positive regard, mm -hmm. and Peterson. Says that's that's the wrong way to look at it, right? There's value to that, and that that's something that you that there's a place for, 
But ultimately, the thing is that let's say that there's aspects of the self that we we all have we all have a tendency towards error. We all have a tendency towards self-destruction. We all have a tendency towards towards abuse or indulgence. And we don't want to feed that. And something that only feeds the parts of you uh, isn't something that actually has your best interests at heart. So you you don't want to only be your own best friend or someone else's best friend. You want to be the best friend of the part of them that wants the best for them. Mm. You know, there's that, you know, that um, parable of the two wolves inside us, right? Mm. You know, the wolf that's filled with love and the wolf that's filled with hatred. And the question is like, well, which, which one, which one wins, right? It's like, well, mm. it's the one that you feed. Um, and, and when you, when you give someone only nurturance, then you allow whatever is within them, positive or negative, to grow. Mm. Um, and that's there's another layer to that that I'm that I'm um, working to integrate, I guess, which is that the negatives are also it's it's not quite right to think of wanting to starve them or get rid of them because they have to be integrated and understood, right? Mm. The, the wolf, the, the part of you that you think is the negative may actually be one of your powers, right? Mm. So it's not so simple as like, you know, get rid of it, but, but there's something about, about this idea of, I wanna be the friend of the part of you that wants the best for you. I like that a lot. I think that's a really profound way of looking at it. And, that's beautiful. and so I, I was out in the woods meditating this summer, and I was thinking about the political situation in the U.S., and I was very, uh, I was very upset about what was happening. And I had this image in my mind of a forest on fire, right? Fire sweeping through a forest. But in in my mind, I could see that the fire that was sweeping through that forest was only burning dead wood and brush. Mm. And I had this realization that. Um, that anger in your sort of uh, in your personal emotional ecosystem is like fire, and when the ecology is healthy, the the fire is a is a necessary part of the cycle, and it burns off the deadwood and makes room for new growth. But when the ecology becomes unhealthy, the fire can burn the heartwood of the tree that can destroy it, and it can it can leave only ashes behind, right? And then it takes time to rebuild. And it feels like so many people have adopted anger and have allowed the ecology to become unhealthy in a way where we're burning the heartwood of, of our system in a way here. Um, and without getting too deep into American politics, the, the insight that I was trying to bring up there is how do we, that we're, we're not trying to get rid of, sorry, here's the connection that I was looking for. A friend isn't somebody who just protects you from the fire, mm -hmm. right? A friend is someone who could stand with you and be willing to bear it as it's happening so that the deadwood can be burnt off, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who will stand with me in it, right? Yeah. I'm looking to be that for myself. Yeah, and that takes much more than just a... That, that takes a disciplined community also, a, a, a community that to some extent stands strong with you. And it's not just 
just being also soft. Um, yeah. To, to love somebody really, truly, deeply is actually a profoundly courageous act. Mm-hmm. I, like, I, I think that people, like, like for me, I've found more and more inspiration through the story of Christ and his, his, his parables and his, his, his existence, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, when Christ calls on us to love our neighbors, Right. Mm. Well, he uses the word agape, and agape means agape doesn't just it doesn't mean friendship, right? It doesn't mean erotic love. Mm. It, it's the type of love you. It's the love that brings good into being, right? It's the love of a parent for a child. It's the love that's given before it's earned. It's given without being earned. Mm. And when when Christ challenges us to love our 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 enemies, right? Mm-hmm. What he's saying is that we we have to have the courage to view them as somebody who can contribute to the good in the world and to be willing to show up to them when they show up to do that work, even though they are our enemies. That's my view, of it, right? And when I view it that way, that's that's the most courageous thing anyone could ever ask of you, right? Mm-hmm. It's not soft at all. And you can't fulfill that call without extraordinary courage, without, without, without these practices that can make you the type of person who can confront the drag, right? Mm-hmm. So, um. <laughs> thanks for sharing. That's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's boiling it down to the, to the core of it. And um, and 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 seeing that that love takes stamina and takes discipline, I think is is really cutting cutting to the core of it. I, uh, and everyone that has uh, a family where there's also kids, they know that it's and that's the reason why so many couples fails to stay together because. There is a well. There might be a lacking love, but but maybe for a lot of them, uh, the greatest part of that is that there is a lacking sense of discipline. There is a failure to invest again and again in the relationship, in like the deep love work, which is which is a very practical one also. And uh, and uh, I think that has been extremely humbling with becoming a father. And but also seeing that 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 actually disciplined work although you don't feel it you feel and i'm talking from personal experience here coming out and seeing my wife again two years after we had our first kid and just being like where the fuck have we been and feeling like it's a desert we need to go through to meet each other again but looking at each other sitting at the therapist and being like both ready to start walking and then when you and you walk there just trusting the words of someone else saying that if you keep walking, there is a chance. And then at a certain point, getting to that place where you actually again are starting to taste that sweet love that you have for another person, that, that when, where everything is just coming back to you. But that character trait of being able to keep marching, I think that is highly, highly undervalued in our culture. 
and in particular perhaps in the spiritual world like the deep work every day every day building a community the same it's not enough just to to do the the word love the caring eyes can you show up again and again and again and again and um if anything of all the wonderful things i've learned from the parkour world it's for sure to show up to to have the stamina to be there tomorrow again yeah I, for some reason i was i don't know if we talked about this here this was uh on the other podcast i listened to you you're talking about your first experience with laurent right and you know uh laurent pimontese who's one of the founders of the yamakazi and wanted to plus and he said he, he made you uh walk on all fours for an hour and a half mm-hmm. and you, you thought you were done and then he made you go backwards on all fours exactly for some reason that pops into my mind is sometimes that's what a relationship can feel like where in your life are you building the discipline and the courage to show up for your relationships in that way mm-hmm. so here here's my question um parkour can do that for you but it doesn't always i know lots of people who who can do the quadrupedal, right? Mm. And can't show up, mm. right? Can't, don't have emotional courage. Mm. Don't have emotional mm. resilience and willingness. Yeah. If we understand that the parkour is a tool that brings you to that place where you have that, mm. because ultimately the ability to show up that way for your wife is way more important than your ability to walk a mile in your hands. Right? Totally. My quest, right? And I think that you share this quest is how do we create better transfer between the practice that happens in the gym or in the streets mm. and the person that we show up as in almost report, important relationships? Mm. Yeah. So, so that's where we're being valued eventually. That's where our practice hopefully, hopefully shows off. Uh, yeah. or shows itself valuable um, and um, so how are you building that it's it's eventually being very very clear in in spotting what your practice is if it is a practice or if it's a sort of excluded regime where you uh where it's like a closed bubble uh, where there are some um, goals inside of it that you want to live up to. Uh, I I mean, as soon as you have the mindset that we've been talking about, that eventually the practice is to serve us, we're not to serve the practice, then you know that you don't gauge your practice or uh, evaluate your practice on your ability to crawl another 500 meters you 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 know exactly how how unimportant how unimportant that is and 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 of course it is because there'll be people that can climb or crawl 100 meters only and the courage it took them the power it took them to do that uh, shows much more about their capacity to go past what is a comfortable to go past what feels right in the situation and still be there 
So, so it's, it's, it has nothing to do with that goal inside of the discipline. And as soon as you know that, then you start to evaluate uh, the, the benefits of your practice in, in your life in general, in your ability to show up in your not being a dick, in your, in your compassion, your, your kindness. And, um, and it's so beautiful to see how, how the practice can, can be exactly that, can build characters like that. And, 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 but, but also to see the opposite, like how it's, how it's fundamentally dry. And even those people that are caught inside of the practice, of course, we just need, we, we, we need them to stay with us. If we turn to be arrogant farts towards them, or if they feel disconnected, then we've lost it. So we need to meet them exactly there where practice is the most important in the world and just see whenever they're ready to just for a short while disidentify with them being that when there's just a little bit kind of like them coming up for air we're ready to present them also with the opportunity that how does this play in on your role to your father or wherever it is that they're they're struggling in their lives um so 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 i think the sensitivity and 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 knowing that it's the most important in the world with the practice and the most ridiculous paradoxes Paradox. in the practice is uh, is everything and it is nothing. Everything is nothing. It changes me and yeah, it can leave me unchanged. I I think what we're doing is part of it, right? It's part of answering this question, right? The, we need dialogue, right? It's in dialogue that we recognize. I think just the dialogue that we've had is quite interesting because yeah. it's been a quite spiritual dialogue. Right? Yeah. It hasn't been so brass a tack. Single, a, a single Dimitor coming in, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? It hasn't been so much about what's specifically happening on the floor as far as like which classes you guys teach or this or that. It hasn't been we've touched a little bit on each of our history, but it hasn't been so much like a, uh, a biography of, of, of your practice or how you've got there. It's really been about the fact that I think that both of us find this quite, these questions really deeply compelling. And in dialoguing about them, we gain insight that we can then, then bring to life. Like I, uh, I personally feel like I have said better some things that I say because of having this dialogue with you. And I hope the same is true for you. I, I really appreciate it. I, uh, and I think also because we, to some extent, share a good part of the path, then it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's also a little bit talking with, with your own experience and, and bouncing yeah. that. And, and although we haven't dived into the particular practices, then I, 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 I feel like repeating that it's not because it's, not important because it is the most important. So mm -hmm. if you can't seduce people to fall in love with the importance of a turn vault or a dimitur, then you'll never get to have this conversation with them. You'll never, you'll never be considered relevant for any further conversation because they're not mindful. If you can get them completely mindful at that moment because you're such a precise teacher, because you're such a precise and dedicated and passionate teacher, then you can have all the other conversations also. But it's almost like it's our entry ticket 
to have this conversation that we know that we can also get people to pay so much attention in that very moment of the physical practice. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've also uh, loved bouncing with you and I, I feel uh, encouraged to, to go, and, go and do the work again tomorrow. I want to reflect back what I heard there because I think it's a really beautiful insight and something that I've I've struggled with to say and to feel like um, like to, to solidify this claim for myself, but I really believe it now. It's in physical practice that we have the best anchor for the development of the self, right? For whatever, you know, whether you call it spirituality or something else. When we can tap into flow, when we can fall in love with the world, when we can become in this and so as as people are on this quest like if we can invite people into that better with an eye towards where it can go but with deep attention to they're in a yoga class right now and i want them to have the best yoga class that is about yoga right or the asana because for most people the asana is what yoga is about even though i don't think that's what it's about um then we, then we get to start the steps, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a beautiful insight, and I think it's a good place to to close the conversation. And if you're too holy to have to go there and do that work, then you're just going to end up like a lonely preacher. There's no one that wants to to eat from your hand. You you really have to go there, do the groundwork, and fall in love with the practice together with the students. Uh, that's that's the that's the entry ticket it's hard work that's what's interesting to me i feel like so you know like there's there's all these spiritual seekers now and i feel like they're trying to take shortcuts mm -hmm. right there's a, i listened there's, to that guru the other day and it was such an amazing way he put it he said there are in the spiritual practice there's the trampoline uh, and there's the ladder and yeah. ayahuasca is the trampoline you <laughs> get one hell of a jump you come out you look over the fence you see unity and newton comes back because that's the law of things and he blows you down and then you might have the luck to get another go on that trampoline but it's, it's just bound to come back because there is no solid ongoing practice and then he says yoga is the ladder it's a little bit at a time and Paco is also the latter, potentially. It's 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 and it's less poetic. And I understand why people are prone to go and take the trampoline once in a while. But um, uh, it is there's there there are just no shortcuts in this one. It seems. I mean, there might be leaps. There might be transformational leaps. And I'm also not um, smart enough to be able to exclude substances as a part of it. It hasn't been. An integral part of my journey but i can also see people that manages to to go there and integrate parts of what they're seeing but i see much more the opposite where it becomes an addiction where it becomes an escape from doing and from not being able to do the steady ongoing work they all end on bali or in india or whatever and they're not dealing with it they're hiding from something uh, and um yeah uh, I, I, I wish for a spiritual practice 
that 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 is so grounded that you that you get that sense of solidity and that's the sense of also empowerment because you can carry yourself you don't need others you don't need anything apart from that you need a warm-hearted community but that's about it yeah i uh i agree i think that um we you know growing up in the heavy community i've seen so much of the trampolining right and i also know people who've really gotten beautiful leaps you know left a few runs on and got themselves back on the ladder right but i think it can be mis misleading you know i think that uh Jung said, you know, for a tree to reach to heaven, its roots must reach to hell. The idea in the hero's journey is mm -hmm. you, you, you don't get to the promised land without going through the underworld, right? without 40 years in the desert. Um, and within our practices, we get to choose the deserts that we wander in. Right? Yeah, and so. we can continue. Ramda says, we tend to trivialize the spiritual journey. We like to make it one that is just about comfort, about entertainment, about feeling good. And it's not, it's not, it's also very uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, I think that's, it's beautiful to make the roots reach to hell. That, that feels almost encouraging when it's put into that metaphor. Yeah. So <clears throat> keep building our roots. I'm with you. Yeah, always a pleasure. Look forward to speaking to you again. I loved it a lot. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.